Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 54. Last week, I covered both the Old and Middle Kingdoms of the Hittites. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm wrapping up the Hittites with the history of their new kingdom. So let's get started. After the Old and Middle Kingdoms, quite naturally, came the New Kingdom. This occurred during the reign of a king known as Tudhalia I, and the kingdom roared back, growing and advancing to become an empire. Specifically, what we now refer to as the Hittite Empire. It was during this period that the people of the empire pushed southward, and also to the southeast and west, ultimately towards the Levant, and back into contact with the people and history of the Old Testament. With the growth of the empire, or maybe because of it, the office and title of king became stronger as well. Remember, in prior episodes, I covered how the king was not treated as a deity, but more of as the first among the mortals. Well, as you probably could have guessed, this didn't last. Instead, with the empire came the sun. Essentially, the king was no longer just a man in office, but instead was better than everyone. In fact, the citizenry began to refer to him as my son, like the star at the center of our solar system, or as they would have seen it in their pre-Copernican mindset, as the star that orbits the earth. And the change in the view of their kings did not end there. They also morphed into a religious role too, and that was as high priest, to the point that it is believed that he made a yearly tour of the entire kingdom, specifically their holy cities. The king also led the religious festivals and provided for the maintenance of the religious buildings. On the international political front, and as was seen in the prior kingdoms, the Hittites tended to enter into peace treaties with their neighbors, instead of engaging in warfare. But this was not always the case, but more of the priority. Negotiate first, and if that proves unsuccessful, then fight. King Tudhalayad I, who ruled from about 1430 to 1400 BC, demonstrated this. He first allied with Kazuwatna, a group found in the highlands of the south-central Anatolian peninsula. Then he drove the Hurrians from their city-states of Aleppo and Mitanni. Next, his forces pushed into Arzawa, essentially in the southwestern portion of the Anatolian peninsula. And by doing so, they drove out the Luwians. Now for some clarification, or perhaps confusion. Tudhalia I may not have been the first monarch of the Hittites with this name. More specifically, there is a theorized predecessor named Tudhalia, who also is sometimes called the first. So this Tudhalia may have been the second Tudhalia, and his successors would have been the third, and so on. Who's on first? Seriously, historians, we need to do more to eliminate confusion, not add to it. For the sake of clarity, when I speak of the first, it's the known one, not the theorized one. Tadhalia I proved to be a bit of an anomaly. When he died, and his son Tadhalia II took the reins, the empire declined. And similar to what happened in the First and Middle Kingdoms, their enemies, this time from all sides, took advantage of the situation. They made it all the way back to the capital of Hattasa, and looted and burned to their heart's content. 
It was the second son, Suppil Uliauma I, who would return the Hittites to their former glory. He rebuilt the city walls of Hattuasa. Suppil Uliauma reconquered again Aleppo, and is evidenced by this, greatly expanded the empire's territorial holdings. Also at the time, the Mitanni of southwest Anatolia and the northern Levant became a tributary state. And it doesn't end there. He conquered the Amorite city-state of Sharshamish, located in what is today western Syria. He seized agricultural lands in the Levant and port cities such as Byblos. So how would he rule this new territory? It's a pretty complicated explanation that requires a little background. Much of the territory was seized from the Egyptians, who at the time had put their support behind the Mitanni. But the Egyptians withdrew their support from the Mitanni, and the Hittites used the situation to gain even more territory. So, to rule it, he stuck with the Hittite tradition and employed his sons to govern over the newly acquired territory. In this newly powerful kingdom, Suppil Uliyama now found himself seated next to the other leaders of the broad region's empires. Well, seated figuratively. Who were the others? At the time, Greater Babylonia was ruled by the Kassites. Remember from last week how that came about? There were also the Assyrians, and of course, the Egyptians. And since politics does indeed make strange bedfellows, and Suppil Uliyama found himself in a unique position such that he could have very easily upset the balance of power among the other empires. Then enters fate. The Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten died, and his son Tutankhamun became the new ruler of Egypt. You may know him by his shortened name, King Tut. King Tut then sent his general Hammurabheb to fight against the Hittites and attempted, mostly in vain, to halt the rise of their kingdom. And with each defeat, the Egyptians grew weaker, while the Hittites grew stronger. Then, King Tut suddenly died in 1327 BC, leaving a widow, Queen Ankhshenamun. So what do you do, especially with three other great regional powers? Well, you merge families. And outside of a fairy tale and Disney movies, this is what has happened to princesses and widowed queens throughout history. Marie Antoinette and her cake, anyone? But history is full of both ironies and sad tales, and this time was no different. The Egyptian queen wrote the Hittite king and asked him to send one of his sons so that she could marry him, not wanting to be forced to marry a servant. Remember, at this time in Egypt, a queen could not rule alone, and there were no sons to ascend. To put it in context, it was a creative request, and was without precedent. Supilulima sent his son, Zanaza, to Egypt to marry her and become Pharaoh. Big win for the Hittites there. But Zanaza never reached Egyptian territory, as he was murdered en route. So who had motive and opportunity? Well, there was an Egyptian general named Horemnaheb and a vizier named Ai both of whom probably did not want a foreigner ruling in Egypt. Supil Uliyama vowed to avenge his son's death and set to kicking the Egyptians out of the Levant. 
Outside of bilateral politics, the Assyrians had taken a different route to maintain and gain power. In their empire, in 1365 BC, the throne was assumed by Esher-Ubalit I. At the same time, the Hittites formed an alliance with the Mitannis. Esher-Ubalit then attacked the Mitanni, while the Hittites provided military assistance. Chariots, troops, weapons, whatever. But it wasn't enough, as the Assyrians defeated the Mitanni, who at the time were led by Madiwaza. And with that victory, the Assyrians assumed control over the territory previously ruled by both the Mitanni and the Hurrians. Territory that extended all the way up to the Hittites. Esher the I then died, and the Assyrian throne was passed to Adad Nir Arai I, who continued the exploits. During his rule, the Assyrians defeated the outlying areas of the Hittites and took control of Sharshamish as well as northeast Syria. And then, Supaluliama contracted a plague, probably carried by the recently introduced Egyptian slaves from his Canaan conquest. And he died from that plague, sometime around 1322 BC. This was after he had ruled for around four decades. He was succeeded by his son, Aruwanda II. But Aruwanda only reigned for about a single year, before succumbing to the same disease. In fact, an unknown but assumed large portion of the Hittite population did not make it through the ravages of the imported epidemic. Following Aruwanda was his brother, Mursili II, sometime around 1330 BC. And Mursili, owing to that he was not in the direct line to the throne growing up, had not been groomed for the job. Or, that was at least the thought of the Hittites' enemies. And as such, they underestimated him. And despite the lost territory to the south, things were not as bad as they may have seemed. The Hittites were still powerful to the east and north. Knowing this, Mursili focused on the west and on securing the borders of the kingdom. He promptly attacked the territory of Arzawa, including its capital, Apsa, a city that would later become known as Ephesus. Think Paul and the Ephesians. He also conquered Milawanda, sometimes called Miletus, at the time controlled by the Iowa. And one interesting tidbit about Miletus. It used to be on the coast of the Aegean Sea, but the river that flows through the area has deposited so much silt that it now lies about 6 miles or 10 kilometers inland. Oh, and another interesting tidbit. The Iowa were probably the predecessors of the ancient Greeks. And about at this time, depending on the source, on the far western end of the Anatolian Peninsula, stood once thought mythical, but actually real, city of Troy. Somewhere in that city and in the era was Helen, Paris, Achilles, Odysseus, Penelope, and the rest of the maybe real, maybe mythical cast of characters. And just a stone's throw from the Hittites. Mursili ruled for about 25 years before he died and passed control to his son Muwatali II, who assumed the throne around 1295 BC. But before covering his reign, a quick trip into Hittite economics and geography. The Hittite economy was largely dependent on both internal and international trade. 
Much of this trade was with their neighbors, for the natural resources found in their territory. And in their case, and like I covered what seems to be so long ago, it was copper and tin, the two ingredients for bronze, in this, the Bronze Age. So why were the Hittites important for trade, besides the natural resources? Well, there's something called the Sicilian Gates, and they are worthy of a quick side trip, and this one covers thousands of years. The Sicilian Gates are also known as the Gulick Pass, meaning a passage through a mountain range, and in this case is the Taurus Mountains in the southern central Anatolian Peninsula. The pass was formed geologically by erosion from the Gokuluk River in the hard granite of the region. And like other similar passes around the world, the sides are steep and treacherous, hence their alternative reference as gates. To its south lies Tarsus, and to the north is Cappadocia. Until the advent of mass air travel, which of course is less than a century old, all commerce, people, etc. moved either by land or sea throughout the world, and if you were landlocked, your options narrowed to one. So these gates have proved vital for both trade and warfare for thousands of years. The ancient city of Yumuktepe, which modernly is known as Mersin, stands on one side of the pass. In it is one of the world's oldest fortifications, with artifacts dating back to at least 4500 BC. To put that time period in context, King Solomon lived closer to our era than to that time. It was ancient history to him. It is thought that the path was guarded before the advent of the will, so it even predates that important invention. And how important is the pass? Well, it was used by the Hittites, of course. But they were not alone. Also the Greeks, Alexander the Great, redundant, I know, the Romans, the Mongols, and the Crusaders all used the pass in their conquest. Not to forget, the Ottomans, when fighting in World War I, utilized the pass to move troops and material. It was also mentioned in Acts 14 and 15 and Galatians 1. In these cases, Paul and Silas passed through the pass when traveling between Syria and Cilicia. The cities of Derbe, Lystra, and Iconium were all in the neighborhood. So to the Hittites, and in their trade with Mesopotamia, defending this pass was of utmost importance. And that leads us up to the Battle of Kadesh, which I have covered in detail in prior episodes. But as a refresher, it was fought between the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II and the Hittites, as the Egyptians sought to increase the territory under their control to the north. This is documented in Egyptian sources as having taken place in the fifth year of Ramses, which would place it around 1274 BC. The forces met on a battlefield to the south of the gates of Sicilia. In the initial skirmish, the Egyptians were beating the Hittites, but not by much. The Hittites then retreated, but it was a strategic retreat designed to lure the Egyptians in and the Egyptians fell for it and chased after the Hittites. During the pursuit, the heavier, more armored Hittite chariots were easily outrun by the lighter, faster Egyptian chariots. Ramses, and quite frankly the Hittites, were all fighting for their lives. Ramses made a plea to his god Amun and personally led several attacks into the Hittite ranks. But the Hittites were not done yet. 
Their leader, Muwatali, still had a reserve force of charioteers as well as infantry, not to forget the city's walls. He retreated his forces back toward the Orontes River. As they neared the river, he had over 1,000 of his reserve chariots attack the advancing Egyptians. And by sheer luck, or maybe skill, the well-timed appearance of Egyptian reinforcements prevented a complete Hittite victory. As the Hittite chariots neared the Egyptians, an Egyptian contingent known as the Niran Troop from Amura arrived. Not too long after that, the Todd Division also showed up, and to the rear of the Hittites. And with this, the tide of momentum turned in the favor of the Egyptians. They drove towards the Hittites, who sought the protection of their fortress at Kadesh. But the losses endured by the Egyptians prevented them from sustaining any sort of successful siege. But they were not going to give up that easily. They charged the Hittites no less than six times, and in doing so, the Hittite forces were nearly surrounded. Their backs were against the Orantis River. Then, they exercised their only option, well, other than the suicidal surrender, and abandoned their chariots and swam across the river. Many did not make it, though, and drowned. And with that, the battle ended in a draw, but also with a great story. After the battle, the power and prestige of the Hittites diminished, as that of the neighboring Assyrians grew. Why was this? Well, as the Hittites and Egyptians fought it out, the Assyrians busied themselves by defeating the Hurrians and Mitanni, and in doing so, expanded their territory to the source of the Euphrates in the Caucasus, and also controlled all or portions of Babylonia, ancient Iran, Syria, Canaan, and Phoenicia quite a list. And in doing so, the Assyrians proved to be a greater threat to the economy of the Hittites than the Egyptians ever were. Back to the leadership of the Hittites. Muwatalia was succeeded by his son, Uri Teshub, who ruled for seven years while becoming known as the ruler Mursili III. He was overthrown by his uncle, Hetasili III, as a result of a short civil war and it was Hattasilia who entered into a treaty with their former enemy, the Egyptians, primarily to offset the increasing military pressure from the Assyrians. As a gesture of good faith, Hattasilia gave the pharaoh his daughter for marriage, attempting to seal the deal, and it worked. The so-called Treaty of Kadesh set their mutual boundaries in southern Canaan. It was signed in the 21st year of Ramses, which would put it 16 years after the Battle of Kadesh, around 1258 BC. Hattasilia III passed the baton to his son, Tudhalia IV, in 1237 BC. It was Tudhalia who proved to be the last powerful Hittite king. As his reign wore on, the Assyrians slowly eroded territory from the Hittites, utilizing the strategy of incrementalism. The small battles and sequential losses led up to the Battle of Nerea, where Tuk Ulti Nin Urtua I of Assyria and Hattasili fought for the leftover remnants of the Mitanni. The penultimate conflict between the two was fought in Nerea, located in the modern country of Armenia in 1245 BC, and the Assyrians won decisively. The loss rocked the Hittite world, leading to many internal revolts against Tuhalia, but he would maintain control, 
though battles between the Assyrians and Hittites would continue for about five more years, but on a smaller scale. Then, a peace was negotiated. However, the reign of Tutalia wasn't all losses. Somehow, he managed to annex the Greek island of Cyprus, but alas, this too was only temporary, as it fell to the Assyrians. Tutalia was succeeded by his son Arnunawanda III, who was quickly replaced by his brother Supil-Uliam II. Supil-Uliam eked out a few military victories, which included a naval battle against the Alishians off the coast of Cyprus. And this may be the first recorded naval battle in history, occurring around 1210 BC. But the Assyrians continued their advances and annexed almost all of the remaining Hittite territory in Anatolia and Syria. It was at this time that they also defeated the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar I. And then, sometime around 1200 BC, the mysterious Sea Peoples began their conquest down the western Mediterranean coast before establishing Philistia. This severed the Hittites' western trade routes and left the kingdom exposed to attacks from all compass directions. A completely unsustainable situation. The Cossacks, Ferruginians, and Brigas all took advantage of the situation and worked their way through the remnants of the kingdom. Then, quite unsurprisingly, Hattasua was looted and burned by the Cossacks around the year 1190 BC. In that battle, it is thought that Supiluliuma died defending his capital, and with that, the Hittite kingdom evaporated. Not that it makes too much of a difference, especially to the Hittites, but they weren't alone. This was during the transition from the Bronze to the Iron Age, and like all such transitions, those on the leading edge thrive, and those not, well, they tend to disappear. And in this era, many of the other cultures and kingdoms of the greater region disappeared. The Assyrians destroyed whatever they could not use from the Hittite Empire and stamped the region with their own culture and values. After this time, there were a number of small city-states and other loosely organized cultures in the area that became known as the Neo-Hittite kingdoms. Some are more well-known than others, such as the ones at Sharshamesh and Milad. These two would fall to the Assyrians, most in the 9th century BC. But the area was still, well, sometimes referred to as the land of the Hattai, as late as the year 630 BC. But by that time, some 600 years after the collapse of the kingdom, most commoners probably had no clue what it really meant. Before I wrap up the Hittites, a little information that didn't quite fit into the timeline style of the narrative of the episodes. First, they were obviously ruled by a king. But he, and it was always a man, he couldn't do it all himself, so he had administrators. Next in line, of course, was the heir apparent, usually his oldest son. But there were also other court officials, who held some degree of independent authority over the different branches of the government. A curious one was the chief of the royal bodyguards. There was also the chief of the wine stewards. Both of these tended to be members of the royal family. The governmental administration was headed by the chief of the scribes, and there was also the king's personal scribe. How do we know this? Well, when you have scribes, 
they tend to write things down. And remember, my frequent admonishments to write stuff down? Well, hire yourself a scribe. It makes the recording of your history that much easier. As for religion, the Hittites tended to adopt the deities of the people they conquered. And in doing so, their religion essentially became a hodgepodge of the more native pantheon of gods and goddesses of the region. Instead of religion, the ruling class seemed to focus on economic and military gains, and, of course, on killing their way to the throne. And that's probably a good place to end this episode and the history of the Hittites. Join me next week when I'll cover the history of several lesser-known places and peoples found in the next several chapters of Genesis. You don't want to miss it. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes, or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a positive review. I've made this request several times and trust that more of you will take me up on it. Doing so helps others to find the podcast. And, this week, I'd like to thank a commenter known as VJ Trace. Your review was certainly uplifting and made my week. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.